first shot's the best shot. That has been the political talking point from politicians since vaccines got into this country. And of course, millions have gotten their shots. I'm waiting for my second shot of AstraZeneca, uh, if I can ever get it. But even those who are pro-vaccine have concerns about what we're putting into our bodies. Many parents are concerned if their kids should get the vaccine, especially when we get growing numbers of reports that mRNA vaccines like Pfizer can trigger heart inflammation in younger people. And there have been cases reported at SickKids Hospital, 1,200 cases in the United States, and there have been cases around the world. Even Israel has been looking into this. Not a huge number, but certainly enough that the CDC and FDA want a warning put on these vaccines. The WHO says don't give vaccines to kids. And a couple of weeks ago, you will recall Dr. Byram Bridal came on this show. He raised concerns about vaccine safety. He talked about spike proteins, dosing safety, and if children should be taking vaccines. He's been attacked relentlessly. He's been called a fraud. I have been attacked for even having the discussion. So I thought we would turn to the inventor of mRNAs, who is now speaking out in support of Dr. Bridal and says... He is right to have these concerns. Dr. Robert Malone is inventor of the RMNA vaccine. He's also one of the world's foremost experts on messenger mRNA therapeutics. So if there's no one more qualified to talk about this, I don't know where to find them. Doctor, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm, I, uh, I, I just wanted to say I was the original inventor of these technologies but many other people have contributed since, and I wouldn't say that I'm I'm just one of many that are are uh, active in this area. And but I'm very glad to speak to you and speak uh, about these issues that you've encountered. Before I get into what Doctor Bridal was attacked for, and and even you have been you know silenced over, I want to make it clear: I'm not an anti-vaxxer. You're not an anti-vaxxer, but. Do you, you do have concerns about who is taking these particular shots? What are the concerns you have and who should not be taking the, the mRNA shots? Okay, uh, and thank you for that lead-in. Um, I wanted to comment on that before. Uh, just to underscore, I'm, I'm a physician scientist who has spent virtually 30 years uh, developing vaccines and advancing vaccines responsibly having them tested, working in biodefense vaccine development, uh, flu vaccine, Ebola. I was key in bringing the uh, PHAC Ebola vaccine forward, which we now call the Merck vaccine, and getting Merck engaged on that. Um, I'm all for vaccine. Furthermore, I'm not against these two technology platforms. I, you know, you can appreciate, if anything, I have a bias towards success of the mRNA vaccine platform, uh, having been uh, uh, seminal in its creation as a technology. However, um, there's the question of what is being expressed in both the RNA vaccines and the adenoviral vectored vaccines, both of which are repurposed gene therapy technology. Let's not sugarcoat this. It is what it is. Um, and many of those concerns stem from the nature of, I'm going to talk vaccine talk now, the antigen, the protein that's expressed that generates the immune, that stimulates the immune response. And that protein is not biologically inert. It has its own biologic activities. It's not just an antigen. And um, 
it's interesting that uh, the adenoviral vectored vaccines, which express typically at higher levels and for longer periods of time, although we don't know that for sure in these cases, because the levels of protein produced by both the adenovirus vector and the RNA have not been characterized to the best of my knowledge. The regulatory authorities have not required that that be done. That's pretty unusual. Um, my concerns are basically summarized as two compartments of things. Um, one is that there doesn't seem to be transparency and there is certainly a heck of a lot of censorship going on concerning what adverse events, that's uh, clinical development talk, uh, for <clears throat> bad things that go that happen after uh, accepting the vaccine, after getting the jab. So information about adverse events is being suppressed. It's being censored. Scientists aren't being allowed to talk about it. Uh, patients aren't being allowed to talk about it. Patients that try to talk to other patients that have had what they believe to be vaccine-related adverse events are being censored on social media. And um, uh, in addition, there are some fundamental bioethical uh, guardrails that we in Western societies have all agreed on. Now, that's not the case in the People's Republic of China and other and in various authoritarian regimes, but I think here in the States and there in Canada, we still consider ourselves to be open Western societies that respect uh, certain rules. And certainly the Canadian people are um, notorious for uh, understanding and following rules and behaving ethically. Uh, so my concerns are around the uh, uh, censorship, uh, the transparency in the bioethics. That doesn't mean that I believe that these vaccines are bad or necessarily toxic or shouldn't be administered or are causing more deaths than they're, than they're saving. Um, there's all of this kind of buzz around that that often happens in social media. That's not my position. I'm a vaccinologist, as is Dr. Bridal. Um, but rather, my position is that um, there must be honesty and openness and ethics surrounding the use of experimental products. It's absolutely essential. And those of us that are scientists and patients also, um, like yourselves, that have accepted vaccine, that have signs and symptoms of uh, things that are associated in time, with receipt of the vaccine, we have to, we're obligated to responsibly investigate whether those things that are connected in time uh, with administration of vaccine may possibly be associated with its administration or are probably associated with its administration. That's just the rules. Does that make sense? L let me. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, let me jump in and ask you this, because, you know, AstraZeneca was shelved in the United States. We're not giving it any longer here uh, because of clotting issues. So most of us who are, have one shot are now being told to mix shots, which I'll discuss with you in a few minutes. But 
we have children, kids, mainly younger males, um, who are getting heart inflammation. It's it's mild. There have been a couple of uh, serious cases, but regardless, um, we stopped AstraZeneca out of clotting concerns. Why are we not pausing in giving kids shots of something that one in 3,000 get heart inflammation from? Okay, first off, I'm going to challenge the numbers that the CDC has released yesterday. And again, my goal is not to um, incite panic or fear. Uh, my, I, my position as a physician scientist that does drug development and is a specialist in outbreaks is that we need to make uh, data-based, scientific evidence-based decisions about um, how we're going to practice medicine and uh, what we're going to use to try to control this pandemic. So that's where I'm coming from on that. So mm -hmm. I'm not meaning to, to slam CDC or nitpick it. However, um, I'm not comfortable with the way they describe the adverse event rate. They, they are using databases that are, um, by their own admission, far from perfect grossly underreport adverse events because they're self-reported and they're taking the they appear to be taking the incidence rate that's a, those are the words meaning how often does this happen how many cases have they acquired accumulated and taking those a sum of those and dividing by the total number of vaccine doses okay so that's kind of that's it's more than kind of it's mm -hmm. it's not uh, good math. It's not correct math to take something that is, by their own admission, very much underreported, under and then dividing it by the overall number of vaccine shots that have been administered. That's not right. Then when they talk about the normal event rate for these things in adolescence, um, they're not actually giving the adolescent rate they're giving the total rate for the entire population. It's not age adjusted. So what they really need to do is take the right numerator, the right denominator, and compare it against the event rate for these symptoms in adolescence. That's not what they're doing. If you make those corrections, the numbers are something in the range of 20-fold higher than what they're reporting. What bothers me about this as a scientist and a physician is that there's the appearance, I can't get into their head, I don't know if they're doing this intentionally, but they're either not being transparent and open with the public or they're incompetent. You know, I, I don't know what to say. I would prefer that it's because they're incompetent at this stage, but, right. but those numbers appear to underestimate the event rate. The other thing about this is that, is it just constrained to, is it just the adolescents? And, and this requires you to kind of understand, I'm going to use some more wonky uh, terminology, data science terminology. So what we were talking about in particular is the new cardiotoxicity events, the, the myocarditis, pericarditis, mm -hmm. been reported yesterday uh, by the CDC. And actually, we had foreshadowing of that uh, a number of weeks ago. So the people are concluding, and the CDC is stating, that they're only observing this in, in adolescents. That's uh, people 18 and under. Uh, the problem with those kinds of statements is some 
fundamental problems in looking at databases on health. If, if you're looking for something like a cardiac event in teenagers or children, they have a really low baseline rate of cardiac problems. You know, MIs, myocardial infarctions in 16-year-olds are as scarce as MT. So it's easy to find a new signal that's associated with vaccines if you don't have a lot of background noise. Right. As soon as you get into older groups, you get a lot more background noise. We call this confounders. And what they do, the technical term is called masking. It becomes very hard to pick out signal from noise as you get into older cohorts. Now, why, is, why am I saying this? I'm not confident that there isn't similar problems happening in older cohorts. It kind of doesn't make sense that it would be limited just to young adults. And so that's another fundamental concern, it's only a concern, I'm not meaning to be an alarmist in any way, but that's, that's, the love, that's what scientists have to do. Getting back to the point about Dr. Bridal, is we have to be free to discuss these things if you, the audience, wish to be protected, you have mm -hmm. to let us have these scientific discussions. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, just because these came to the market so quickly, we don't know anything really about this brand new technology, as you well know. And so we're learning as we go. Um, you know, the talking point here is science is evolving. Well, that's great. Uh, but a lot of Canadians don't want to be guinea pigs. Um, and, and since we've had these vaccines, you know, we were told to get the AstraZeneca, then that was pulled. Now our government is saying, don't worry, you can mix it. You can mix one with the mRNA shot. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I would like the second shot of AstraZeneca, even though I didn't want this shot at all. Um, but there are a lot of people saying, uh, the government here telling the people, you can mix mRNA shots. Is it okay to mix shots, doctor? Okay, so I, I uh, hope someday I can travel to Canada so I don't want to directly contradict your public health officials. Forgive me for that. However, I do feel like we have to be science and data-based, evidence-based. Right now, we don't have the data to say whether you can mix or not. It could well be that if you mix, you get even better protection. That's often the case with vaccines. But um, I'm uncomfortable with public health officials making claims based on a best guess. Um, I've been using. They the say this is backed by data. I, I mean, I, and I'm curious. I mean, they. they yeah. Okay, but they, they say they're basing these decisions on data. Um, there's not a lot of data out there. Sir John Bell, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who helped develop uh, AstraZeneca in the United Kingdom, said about a month ago, do not mix these vaccines. We don't have the data. So where would our public health officials be getting the data to suggest that it's okay to mix? They would have to have structured clinic, prospective clinical trials. I'm not aware, you know, if, if, if there are clinical trials that show, for instance, that the spike protein expressed from uh, uh, cells after administering one of these vaccines that gets cut loose from those cells and is then administered to somebody's bloodstream is not toxic. I'm not aware of that data. Um, if there are data that say that you can mix these vaccines and they are at least as equivalent, equivalent if not better, I haven't seen those data. Maybe they exist, but if they do exist, the governments uh, have an obligation 
this gets to the fundamentals of bioethics, which is my other problem with all this. The government has an obligation and the pharmaceutical companies have an obligation to completely disclose risks to people taking an experimental product. And that means they can't say, well, we've got the data, but we're not going to show it to you. That's, that's not, not right. It's not proper. It's not fair. Just to, I know this is a phrase that Canadians are familiar with. Um, it's not right. They have an obligation to show us all of the data about risk and treat us as an adult and let us make decisions about our own bodies. We don't belong to the state. It's so the state to convince us, not to compel us. In my well, I mean, the, the argument there will be, doctor, that we are in a pandemic. We have to get shots in arms. We have to get rid of this virus. So there's going to be many who are alarmed by what you're saying, and they'll be second-guessing whether they get, get shots. We can't get rid of this virus. And the endpoints for the clinical trials are not about stopping the virus. The endpoints are about stopping the disease. And mm -hmm. I agree. We have to stop the disease. And these shots are showing that they're doing a great job stopping the disease. But... While they're experimental, that's still, we have fundamental bioethics that we've all agreed on. It goes back to the Nuremberg trials, the Helsinki Accord. Um, we have key things in the United States, and it's actually incorporated in U.S. federal law. There are, there are established norms during clinical research of bioethics. And one of them is that it transcends just clinical research into post-licensure. There has to be full and complete disclosure of risk. Everybody, everybody that takes vaccine has to know the, what those risks are. They have to be able to comprehend them. They have to be able to. They have to be told to them in common language that they can understand, not sciency talk. And they have to freely accept. They cannot be coerced to uh, participate in what's essentially a very, very large medical experiment. That's the truth. That's where we're at right now. That's not alarmist. And I completely agree. I, I don't want Canadians to die. I, these vaccines help prevent death. But that doesn't um, obviate. It doesn't mm -hmm. change the requirement that there has to be full and open disclosure, that, that risks have to be understood, and that patients have to be allowed to freely accept the the experimental product, and that means no coercion. And coercion includes statements that could be made by the prime minister or mm -hmm. your uh, local public health authorities. Those things are not okay. The job that they have is to convince us, not to compel us. These are the right. rules. Yeah, so it's got to be more than just a talking point. Nonetheless, doctor, uh, I know a lot of people will um, ask questions. I certainly know that you yourself have been censored, taken off um, Google. Your words have been uh, attacked. I do appreciate you joining us. It was if you can just sum up just, Let's get it quickly. right. Um, and, <laughs> and I was on Tucker Carlson last night, and Tucker got it wrong, and now I get the blowback from that. Um, YouTube censored the video of Brett, Steve, and myself, in which Brett and Steve were talking an awful lot about ivermectin. And they did it after a week and almost uh, 800,000 views. So it wasn't overnight. Um, actually, so far, I, I'm very careful in what I say on social media. And mm -hmm. so far, 
I haven't been censored except for that one video. And um, that video hit on a real hot button uh, for the censors, which was a frank advocacy for ivermectin. And um, so I, I just wanted to make sure that we don't overreact. I think that's important. Right. Well, I do certainly appreciate you coming on. I certainly think the uh, uh, it's important to have debate about these things. And so uh, I appreciate your perspective and certainly your insight into this. And we'll talk again, I hope. Thank you. Thanks for your time. No, thank you for your time. That is Dr. Robert Malone, uh, an inventor of the mRNA vaccine. So take his words with the which you will. Uh, but it's good to have all sides on these things and we should be able to discuss the good, the bad and the ugly.